Well, good morning again. Please be seated. If you have a Bible, I hope you do. Kids are dismissed. If they have not already been dismissed, you are dismissed now. If you have not grabbed the communion cup, but you are a follower of Christ, then do so. Um, We are in our series. We're wrapping up, obviously, uh, commandment number eight today, uh, nine and ten next two weeks. And then we will do a two-week study on the purpose and nature of the church and bring us to the end of September, I think the first week of October. And then we'll jump into the book of Philippians. We do expository preaching going through books of the Bible. We'll be in the book of Philippians, Gospel Joy. I think it's the second week of October. So um, if you have uh, your Bible, your tablet, however you read and study, be reading through the book of Philippians um, as much as possible. But this morning, as we study the Ten Commandments, a gospel perspective, we're in Exodus chapter 20. We're looking at verse 15 today, but as I've done in the past, um, I'm going to start from chapter uh, Exodus 20, verse 1, and read through verse 15 to keep everything and all the commandments in context. And it's called a gospel perspective, and I hope that you're seeing that as we've been studying this study. Uh, you know, this text together, uh, both here, of course, in the building and home, that, that this really is a portrait of the Lord Jesus Christ who fulfills all the law, the prophets in himself, and that we are to walk in him. So I hope you're seeing the gospel really shine through in these Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 15. Hear the inspired, fallible, authoritative word of God. Exodus 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Commandment 1. You shall have, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the waters under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But showing steadfast love to to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Number two. Number three. You shall not take the name the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Commandment number four, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor, do all your work, but the seventh day is Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you, your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, livestock, sojourner who's within the gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Commandment number five, honor your father and your mother that your days may long, that, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. Commandment number six, you shall not murder. Commandment number seven, you shall not commit adultery. And commandment number eight, our text, number, chapter 20, verse 15, you shall not steal. May God add a reading, a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. Now, we've said that the first four commandments are what they call the first tablet or the first table of the law where it really does spell out our duty before God. We are to worship God alone. We are to worship him rightly. We are to honor him and worship him by honoring his name. We are to rest in his provision. We get to commandment five through the end. Um, we not only recognize our duty, but now we recognize our duty to our neighbor, the second table, uh, table of the law, where we have our duty uh, to one another. And they are kind of bound together, we said. They're bound together in one common obligation that's been given to us by the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 22, when he said, to love the Lord, what are the greatest commandments? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, To love him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Not separate from it, it's like it. It comes out of it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Now, before we jump into this eighth commandment, think with me for a minute. What would life be like? What would the world look like if everyone tomorrow woke up able and decided to follow simply the Ten Commandments? 
What if everyone was to worship the Lord, love and, and, and be faithful to their covenantal spouse, honor and care for our parents, never kill, never steal, never lie, never covet anything from anyone? What an amazing world that would be. If we kept the Eighth Commandment, we would not need copyright laws, patent laws. We wouldn't need to lock doors. We wouldn't need to spend money. Just following just the, the simple Ten Commandments, we wouldn't need weapons, courts, contracts, or prisons. That's because this law is good. These laws, this moral standard that God has given us is good, righteous, and holy. Romans chapter 7, verse 12. Because we've been saying over and over, this moral standard is an expression of the lawgiver. The law is an expression of the lawgivers. And for followers of Christ, as it was when God gave these Ten Commandments to his people back in Exodus, they were given after their redemption. As not only as an obligation... To, to serve and to worship this redeeming God, but a means of showing gratitude and expression on how to love that God. The commandments don't save us. They help sanctify us. They help us grow to be more like Christ. They don't redeem us. They reshape us and lead us. Remember the new covenant promise in Jeremiah. God said in the new covenant, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. They will, they will, I will be their God and they shall be my people. There's a change that happens in the regenerating work of the gospel. And the gospel is simply declaring that by faith in Christ's perfect life, atoning death, resurrection from the grave, by faith we are justified, forgiven of our sins, made righteous, the imputation righteousness of Christ, and then empowered by the Holy Spirit to obey God's moral laws that now become our guide and shows us what love looks like. Romans 13, Paul says the same thing. As we look at this Eighth Commandment, though, you shall not steal, I want to look at it under three questions. Two of the questions come from what's called the Heidelberg Catechism. A catechism is a a way to bring unity of Scripture and to teach uh, the Word of God. It's actually some really good catechism. Heidelberg is one of them, but uh, there's good apps out there. Actually, you want to teach your kids uh, the the truth of Scripture. The Heidelberg Catechism comes from us... uh, comes from actually 1563. Still, still great. So they ask these two questions. What does God forbid from the Eighth Commandment? What does God require for the Eighth Commandment? And then I'm going to add, what does God provide when we get to the gospel? So those are the kind of three questions as we look, thou shalt not steal or do not steal. Okay, those are the three questions. What does God forbid? So a few years ago, it kind of goes back a few years, but I thought it was an interesting survey um, by uh, Barna. George Barna, many of you know him, does all kinds of surveys. It said, it took a survey and it said that 90%, 90% of evangelical Christians claim that they never break the eighth commandment. 90%. So if you're here this morning, you're thinking, you know what? Yeah, I, I can see that. I'm one of, I'm, I, I'm a, count me in that 90%. Let's keep that thought and let's see how things go as we get into this text, okay? You might think differently. I think what this statistics is really showing us is that believers have forgotten what stealing really is, what it really means. The truth is that theft is prevalent at every level of American culture. And like everyone else, I don't think it's that easy for us to just say, it's not me. And it's not just an American problem, it's a human problem. The human problem has, uh, uh, the human race has a problem with thievery. We all suffer loss. Martin Luther said, if we look at mankind and all its conditions, it is nothing but a vast wide stable full of great thieves, end quote. To steal, to take something that doesn't belong to you. The Hebrew word here, to steal, ganoth, literally means to carry something away in stealth or in secret. A technical uh, definition would be to steal is to appropriate someone else's property unlawfully. Have you ever been stolen from? I remember as a young boy, I don't know, I must have been maybe eight, nine years old, uh, coming home from a family outing and a house had been broken into. And and I remember distinctly feeling, you know, uh, violated. If you've ever been, had your house broken into, you know what that feels like. Out in Voorheesville, where I live, 
um, every well, a couple times a year. They think it's kids. We're not really sure. There's a, people are sh- opening car doors. Got to keep your doors locked. They're not breaking in your car. They're opening the door and taking whatever they can and they run, right? So uh, we, we've had that happen to us, right? Taking stuff that you leave in your car and next thing you know, your iPad's missing. The Bible does teach over and over again, the scripture does teach the concept of private property ownership. Okay, private property ownership. But also the scriptures teach that everything in the universe belongs to God. It is God who distributes things to people and whatever he's given you is yours and should not be taken from you. And whatever he's given to them is theirs and again should not be taken from them. Actually, in Scripture, rules about private property and its use um, takes up quite a lot of ink, actually, in the law of God. God cares about physical things, and he sets up the instructions and structures of ownership. And the children of Israel, you can read all of the book of Exodus and other parts of the law, were to respect the belongings of others. The land itself was designated and given by God and given careful laws and rules. Although it was, of God, it was God's land, they had rules to follow and they were to use their land and keep their land and not take others of the land of others. Deuteronomy 19.14 You shall not move your neighbor's landmark, which the men of old have set in, in, in the inheritance that you will hold in the land that the Lord your God has given you to possess. So don't go out there moving the stake a little bit, you know, a little every year. Exodus 22 also speaks of stealing an ox and a sheep, a thief found breaking into a home, a man who, who lets his uh, animals uh, graze on their land, uh, lets them loose and feed on somebody else's land. It says they shall make restitution. If a man gives his neighbor money or goods uh, to keep safe and is stolen from the house, then if the thief is found, they should pay back double the restitution. And there are things in the Old Testament that uh, talk against stealing like, uh, condemning false weights and measures, right? False weights and measure. You know, like you put your finger on the scale a little bit or you lift it up, depends on if you're buying it or you're selling it, right? It's a modern-day equivalent of overpricing goods and services. Cashing in when there's a crisis. Cashing in when people are in need, like quadrupling the price for a generator <laughs> during a power outage, right? You've seen that before. Or taking a bottle of Purell, that was about... $4, and on Amazon's $150, right? That's stealing. Exploiting in all forms of overcharging are theft. The Eighth Commandment also prohibits the unlawful taking of people. They got it. Exodus 21. Talking about slavery, and not the slavery that we think in our mind. Actually, the slavery that we have in our mind is actually the stealing of people back in the day. And Exodus speaks about that. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. I'm not going to get into all the different nuances of slavery in the Old Testament and what is today. It's also a theft when debts are left unpaid. When you know you can pay the other person, or you ought to pay the other person, and you don't pay. Oh, no one anything, Paul says, except to love one another. Stealing threatens the social unrest. And causes pain to others by undermining the ability to own things and to be, be, to be useful for them and, and, and to be needful, something they may need. There are all kinds of thefts today. Think about it. There's identity theft. There's a new commercial now. Have you ever said a commercial out that says, you know, I was home one day and someone knocked on the door and they had the deed to my house. My house was stolen right from me. I don't know how true that is, but that's a little scary. You ever get a bill in the mail that you didn't buy, uh, you know, something you didn't buy? You lock your doors at night? I do. Have weapons to protect ourselves and property? Security system? We have one here. We have a security system in church. The church got broken into a couple years ago. I don't know if you know that or not. We got cameras. All this to protect from ceilings, right? We, We lock our cars. We have car alarm systems. We have technology security. It's just, you know, unbelievable. We have codes and codes on phones, security codes, online banking codes, credit card codes. All kinds of security codes, login, user, passwords. Why? So that our stuff is not stolen. Think about what a problem this is. The security people at stores, security detectors on clothes, right? Sometimes you have to get that thing, you got to take it off so you should get out of the store. For what? So that you don't walk out without paying it. That's what it's for. 
Martin Luther again said in his day that if they took all the people who were stealing and hung them, they'd run out of rope. And they need to start using men's belt to hang the rest of the thieves. People have been known to pilfer public property, steal supplies from hospitals and hotels. I read, uh, uh, I read something this week that said there was a hotel, this first year of business, they had to replace 38,000 spoons, 355 coffee pots, and 100 Bibles. People steal from the government, right? Not paying their fair share of taxes or making false claims on disability and Social Security. The government steals from us too. Let's not forget that. They use bureaucracy, committing theft on a national scale by wasting public money, by accumulating debt without any real plan of repaying it, leaving it a major deficit, stealing from our future citizens. There's also theft at work. Employees fill out false time cards. They don't give their employees the work that they are required to. Sometimes it goes so far as people embezzle from their work. Maybe, which is more common, maybe not doing everything you're supposed to in a full day. Many people steal from their employer by using the internet all day long for their own pleasure. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram takes up a lot of time. Some even help themselves to supplies. Get a little warm in here? Air conditioning's on. All right, maybe they padded the expense accounts. We're robbing when we don't give at our employment the productivity that we owe them. But employee theft makes up, I read this this week too. I, just some of the statistics was unbelievable. Employee theft makes up to more than $200 billion a year. According to some estimates, as much as one-third of products' costs goes to cover the various forms of stealing that occur on its way to the marketplace. But employers take and steal from their workers, don't they? They require longer hours than agreed upon. Stealing. They downsize their workforce to an unreasonable size to improve profits. And those who are still working there are then loaded beyond reasonable, uh, reasonableness to continue to working. Large corporations steal. They send their money, we know, overseas. They hide, they hide certain things, uh, transactions off the books. You see how pervasive this problem is? That's not the way it's supposed to be. When God made the world, he made it very good and without sin. And all this stealing and all these countermeasures that we are doing on a regular basis, you and I do every day, to protect our good is a result of the sin, of sin, the fall, and the curse. Pastor Mark Driscoll, who's in Arizona now, um, comprised a list, not an exhaustive list, but a, a, a rather interesting list of what theft is. I'm going to read it to you. It's just in case you think this doesn't apply to me. Embezzling, unreasonably high interest rates, unfair pay loan, payday loans, rig gambling, breaking, uh, breaking in, unjust taxation, burglary, larceny, hijacking, shoplifting, extortion, racketeering, unpaying your taxes, underpaying your taxes, filling false insurance claim, governmental waste, excessive national debt, falsely billing clients and or falsely billing an employer, misappropriating company funds, killing time at the work, not paying your employees, taking supplies and or stocks, Stock good and items from your employer, taking intellectual property, plagiarism, illegal downloads, identity theft, etc. That's a lot. The sin of stealing, though, ultimately, as in all sin, is against God. If we're honest, every theft is a failure to trust the provision of God. What God provides for us. We steal something when it doesn't belong to us, but to someone else. We're really denying that God is able to give us everything we need. And therefore, the Eighth Commandment is a practical exercise of our faith in God's provision. Also, when stealing something that doesn't belong to us is an affront to God's providence of the other person. And what they own and what they have and what God has given them. It robs what he has provided for someone else. Because by saying you shall not steal, God indicates that people have the right 
to own their own property. Otherwise, if that were not the case, stealing wouldn't be an issue. We wouldn't be talking about it. There'd be nothing you own. Therefore, having these laws about stealing shows us that God gives things to people and it belongs to us by the precious goodness and care of God who gives it to us. And and that brings us to the positive side of this eighth commandment. The Bible means, what the Bible means by ownership is not possessing things to use for our own purposes, but receiving things from God to use for his glory, right? So, so it's not just this is mine, this God has given me for his own glory. At the same time that we are forbidden to take things that don't belong to us, we're required by God to serve him, to worship him. And put it very simply, the eighth commandment, you shall not steal, is not only about stealing, it has to do with stewardship. Stewardship. What does God require? Jerry Bridges says there are three basic attitudes toward our possessions. Three attitudes that we have towards the things that we own. One, what's yours is mine. That's the attitude of a thief. Number two, what's mine is mine. I'm keep it. That's the attitude of the selfish. Third, the gospel attitude which says what's mine is God's, I'll share it. Christ and Christians are called to live generously as stewards. With all the negative things about stealing, let's, let's not miss, family, let's not miss the radical difference of why the world says we ought to work and why God says we ought to work. Right? The, the reasons we ought to work not to steal, the reason we ought to be generous and not hoard the thing God gives us. Christians recognize that ownership of all that we have is not ultimately about what we have, but derives from God's good and gracious authorization. He owns it all. In the beginning, God placed Adam over the created world, not as this tyrant to do what he wants, but as a steward. A steward is someone who who cares for someone else's property. A steward is not free to use it however he or she feels or pleases, but only to manage it in such a way in accordance with his master's intentions. Whatever we possess is God's property. And it's given to us, and he has given us the, the sacred trust of looking after it. Adam did not own property. He managed it. The Lord took the man. Put him in the garden that he created to work it and take care of it, Genesis 2.15. John Calvin said this, The custody of the garden was given in charge to Adam to show that we possess the things which God has committed to our hands on the condition that being content with the frugal and moderate use of them, we should take care of what shall remain. That this economy and this diligence with respect to those good things which God has given us to enjoy may flourish. That everyone regard himself as a steward of God in all things which he possesses. Then, Calvin writes, he will neither conduct himself dissolutely, extravagantly, nor corrupt by abuse those things which God requires to be preserved, end quote. In other words, you will care for things, whether, the, whether it's the earth itself or all the things that God gave you in a different manner if you recognize you're a steward that God has given it to you to care for. And like Adam, we are called to be good stewards of this world. We are called to take care of it and not be wasteful with the things God gives us. Squandering money is a kind of theft. Had sin not entered the world... There would, be, there would be no need to protect our rights or mark boundaries. There would have been no such thing as private property. Only though, only in a perfect world would collectivism be possible where each person works solely for the glory of God and the common good. But sin changed all that. And the marking off of boundaries and the institutions like governments and, 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 and laws that are to keep neighbors from theft and vandalism and trespassing. What did God say about our treasures? It's not about your stewardship. It's what, what did God say about it? Jesus said this, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
But the reverse is true too. Where your treasure goes, your heart will, will tend to go after it. If you're having a hard time getting your heart in the right place, then, then send your money ahead. Your heart will follow. And you're thinking, uh-oh, the pastor's talking about money. We're talking about theft, stealing. We're talking about money. And if you're new here or you've been here only a couple times, let me distance ourselves, distance ourselves, the church, King's Chapel, the family here, from the twisted prosperity gospels and preachers you see on TV with jets and Rolls Royces. And the wife who looks like she lost a paintball fight, that's not us. But Scripture talks about earthly treasures and what we do with it. And many of us, if we're honest, as Malachi tells us, we steal. And when we steal, we steal from God. Malachi chapter 3, verse 12, talks about withholding, giving to the Lord. The prophet considers that to be robbery from God because God is the owner of all things. In Malachi chapter 3, they ask a question. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you, Lord? In your tithe and contributions. You are cursed with a curse. For you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Some people feel uncomfortable when the topic of money comes up. Maybe because you, there's been some abuse in a former church. I get it. Maybe that you got caught up in this prosperity nonsense and you're a little leery. I get it. But sometimes we feel uncomfortable because we're talking about your God. Small g. Right? Threatening to lose that God. And if you say, hey, pastor, don't talk about my money. I'll tell you, there's the problem. It's not yours, it's God's. It's not yours, it's God's. You see, when we steal, and stealing happens when, when wealth becomes our God. Do you see, by breaking the first two commandments, how stealing will follow? Right? First commandment, there's one God. Worship the Lord your God and worship Him only. Have no other false God that you're clinging to, running to, being satisfied in. Second commandment, we should worship that God alone. Stealing happens when money becomes God and the efforts of our life are to accrue as much as possible. Hold it on for ourselves. It's called greed. We're not talking about being smart and putting away money. We're talking about the heart issue, right? Because Jesus, Paul says, excuse me, that the love of money is the root of all evil, right? The, the problem is not money, it's the love of money. That's why Jesus says where your treasure is will reveal ultimately where your heart is. Jesus said you can't worship God and money. You can't worship God and money. You can worship God with your money, but you can't worship God and money. And Malachi talks about two things, the tithe, which is 10% of your income, and contribution, which literally means sacrifice, something above the tithe. You say, all right, whoa, 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 whoa. Wait a minute. Does God still operate under the law with a certain percentage basis anymore? Aren't we not under the law? And I'm, I would say, yes, you're right. But there's a New Testament standard by which we are to give. And read the letter of 2 Corinthians chapters 9 and 10, where Paul says this, that each one must give as he has decided in his own heart, your decision between you and the Lord, not reluctantly or under compulsion, but God loves a cheerful giver. We love that verse. Keep reading. And Paul says this about giving that glorifies God's because of their submission that comes from the confession of the gospel. So yeah, let's forget the tithe because now we are to give according to the generosity of the one who, who left comfort, left the heaven's glories, right? Of heaven, came to the sinful world. And though he was perfect, drank the cup of wrath as your substitute, as my substitute, hangs on a cross, bears our sin and guilt in our place, says, here, forgiveness is offered to you free, no charge. Give like that. That's what the New Testament teaches. In so many ways, the New Testament does not neglect, belittle, or diminish the law. It actually enhances it. Give according to the gospel. What does the scripture say? Paul, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. Now, remember we're talking about stealing, we're talking about uh, giving, all those concepts, right? Think of this in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. Let the thief... See, when I read that verse, let me, let me give you a confession. Okay? When I read that verse, I'm thinking of bank robber. Right? Not me. No, I never wasted time on the job. 
I never took anything that didn't belong to me. Now I think different, right? Okay, so let me no longer steal, but rather let me labor, work, doing honest work with my hands, our hands. Why? So that he may have something to share with anyone in need. First Thessalonians 4. Aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs. Facebook followers. And to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Second Thessalonians 3.10. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. What does God require? To work to be generous. To work to take responsibility for those we are uh, under our care or accountable to. Working for the believers to be to, to, as, as much as possible. I understand there are circumstances. I get that. But working for a believer is to, is to make sure wherever possible that he or she is not dependent upon other people. We serve one another. We give one another. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about an able-bodied person who just takes and will not work. That's what he's talking about. We're not talking about those who have hard times, difficult times. That's not what he's saying. We are to work and fulfill our obligations, to be faithful to our contracts, faithful to our promises, to pay our debts, to honor our word, and to provide for others. And therefore, what? He says to bring glory to God as we, as we live our life with outsiders. Doesn't mean we can't enjoy what God has given us. That's part of being a good steward. But we always ought to be thinking about how we can serve, love, and give to others. It is only this way that money loses its power over us. Kent Hughes said this Every time I give, I declare that money does not control me. Perpetual generosity is a perpetual de. Deification of money, the, the lowering of its value and standard in my life. What does God forbid? What does God require? And what does God provide? Four ways. Number one, Jesus fulfills his commandment how? Number one, or A, Jesus fulfills the eighth commandment in his incarnation. In Philippians chapter two, we're going to get to Philippians, so I've I'm, I'm got like Philippians on the brain. Paul wrote this about Jesus in the incarnation, verse 6. Who, that's Jesus, though he was in the form, that's word morphe, inner nature, God himself did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form, that's the same word, he's fully human, of a servant being born where in the likeness of men and being found in human form. That's actually a different Greek word. It means that he looked like a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Now, consider this event, how Christ in his complete obedience to the will of his Father came to this sinful world to redeem it, leaving the pleasures and the glory of heaven in comparison to the disobedience of the first Adam. In the garden of of Eden, Adam was, was disobedient and took what God had not given him, what God told him, was not his. He saw the forbidden tree. He saw the forbidden fruit and took it anyway, thinking that would give him equality with God. You will be like God. Christ, though equal with God, did not count his equality with God something to be grasped, to forcibly hold on to. And Paul is saying that even though Christ already existed as God, he is equal with God, he resolved not to cling to that expression of his deity. It's not the possession. He never lost possession of his deity, but the expression. He, he took on the, he, uh, his eternal nature changed when he took on humanity. That's why it says that. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Jesus comes fully God and now fully man. Takes his place, leaves a place of glory, ta- leaves the treasures of heaven. And what? Gives up his riches, the Bible says, to take our poverty. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Although he was rich in glory, the glories of heaven. Yet for your sake and my sake, he became poor. So that you by his poverty might become rich. 
He's talking about the deceleration and exaltation of the work of Christ on the cross. You see, the opposite of thievery is generosity. And in the incarnation, we see the infinite rich and infinite generous Christ. The incarnation is the embodiment of generosity and the ultimate contrast of thievery. Jesus fulfills the eighth commandment in his incarnation and in his perfection. We saw, we've been saying that the law is a reflection of the perfect righteousness of the God who gave it and of Jesus Christ, his son. We affirm here at this church, there's something going on around uh, online, I don't know if you've seen it, but like 30, 40, 50% of, of Christians say that Jesus is not God, not a king's chapel. I'll tell you that right now, right? So he himself, Jesus himself, fulfilled every jot and tittle of the law. He said himself he did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. And in the New Testament is is a reference over and over to the sinlessness of Christ. What does that mean? That when he was in the carpenter shop working for his dad, he did his fair share of work. That Jesus never stole anything, never shoplifted, never underpaid his taxes, never misappropriated company funds, never killed time at work. I got a bunch of verses. Hebrews 4, we have a high priest who's tempted every way. Every point like us, yet without sin. Only God is without sin. 2 Corinthians 5.20, For our sake, he, God the Father, made him to be sin, a sin offering, who knew no sin, so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. 1 Peter 2.22, He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. 1 John 3, You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is what? No sin. That's the good news. God takes on flesh. His name is Jesus. He comes to pay a debt we owe to God because of our sin. He lived without sin. He lived without debt. No debt. No spiritual debt at all. What if you got a phone call when you got home? And all your loans were paid off by the one you owe the debt to. Your car loan. Your student loan. Your home loan. Your medical payments. Debts. All paid off by the one you owe the debt. How would that make you feel? Excited, head of the company, writes a check, debt-free. How many of you would say thank you very much? It's not going to happen. Don't get your hopes up. But you would be very thankful. That's what God does. Christ's perfect life required. Christ's perfect life was required. To pay your sin debt. Otherwise he would have died for his own sin. Okay. In his incarnation. In his perfection. Look at his crucifixion. On the cross. Jesus Christ was crucified between two. What? Thieves. Some translations. Robbers. Here we see our our sinless, law-abiding Lord crucified for all the thieves, not unlike the ones who were hanging in between him. Here was one person who never took anything, fulfilled all obligations, and then pays the debts he did not owe, hanging next to two common thieves, bearing the shame, the guilt, as though he himself had committed the crime. The thief crucified next to our Lord's One of them may have experienced the unbridled power and authority and wrath of Rome that Friday afternoon hanging on the hill, on a tree, on the hill called Golgotha. But because of the crucifixion of the one, the God-man, just feet from him, he would not have to endure the wrath from heaven. One thief turns to Jesus and says, we're receiving the due reward of our deeds. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says to you today... Actually, this day. Anybody tells you we spent three days in hell, turn to that passage. This day you shall be with me in paradise. But you know, as far as God's justice is concerned, there really were three thieves on the cross that day. Two thieves died for their own crimes and one died for the crimes of others. Again, Martin Luther. Christ was not only found among sinners... But of his own free will and by the will of the Father, he wanted to be an associate of sinners, having assumed the flesh and blood of those who were sinners and thieves and who were immersed in all sorts of sins. 
Therefore, when the law, law found him among thieves, it condemned and, exec, and ex- executed him as a thief, end quote. When Christ died on the cross, he died for thieves. So that anyone, any thief, any thief can be saved. And not only does Jesus pay our debts, he gives us an inheritance. And he says to this man, you shall be with me in paradise. Eternal kingdom is yours. Eternity of blessing in paradise. It's, it's, it, it's just amazing if you think about it this way. That the one whom we have been stealing from all our lives would pay off our debt, our sin debt, adopt us as his children and give us an inheritance of an eternal kingdom. That's a gracious God. That's a loving, merciful, kind God. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Incarnation, perfection, crucifixion, and finally the provision. Jesus transformed, not only fulfills, but transforms the Eighth Commandment by helping us see that God is enough. God is enough. He, he, he transformed it to show us that God is enough. We're to set our hearts on the true treasure. Jesus himself brought the treasure from heaven down to us in his coming, establishing an eternal, everlasting kingdom. We do inherit a kingdom. We saw that in Hebrews. We do inherit a kingdom. But by far the greatest inheritance, but by far the greatest inheritance is the very presence of God. For he himself is our greatest treasure that we must value above all other treasures. Two parables back to back I want to look at before we close. Matthew 13, 44 and 45 and 46. This is what it says. Jesus teaching. The kingdom of heaven is like treasures hidden in a field which a man uh, found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Get that picture. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant who's in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. You see, the the first parable there's this hidden, it seems like he finds it by accident. It's not really looking, but then we have this surprise, this emphasis of shocking and happy response from, from his joy. He sells all that he has and he buys the field. Joy floods his heart as he stumbles upon this great treasure. In the second parable, we have a merchant who is looking. He, he's searching. He's looking high. He's looking low. He's looking far. He's looking wide. And he's searching for pearls. He's seeking that, that fine and beautiful and precious pearls. His desire is focused. His eyes are, are laser sharp. And the merchant's life has been bound up pursuing the most precious object. And when he finds it and he comes across this great beauty, this great value, this great treasure, he goes and he does the same thing. He sells all that he has. Now, make no mistake, in these parables, there's a cost. There's a cost to obtaining this treasure. The cost seems very high. Uh, The cost uh, for them that they had had to give. But if you look at it a different way, the cost was very small because finding in a field, a man did did this quick analysis, everything I have and this treasure. And then looking at this pearl, he says, all right, everything I have and this pearl. It didn't take long for them to realize that selling everything they had was going to make them much more wealthy beyond their wildest dreams because of what they have. They would be a fool not to do whatever it takes, whatever was necessary to gain the treasure in which they found. The takeaway is this. Faith is trusting and treasuring Christ above all earthly things. Heaven, eternal life, is more about a person than it is a place. What will make the kingdom of heaven so heavenly to us will not be the glorious wonders of a new creation, a new heaven, a new earth, a rich reward, as great and wonderful as it is. The heaven of the age to come, the treasures of treasures, will be God himself. Knowing him, being with him, the one from whom all blessings flow. 
Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The Apostle Paul, again in Philippians, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing, surpassing value, the surpassing Worth. I count everything as lost because of the surpassing value and worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, dung, in order that I may gain Christ. Selling all he had for Christ. Genuine faith is expressed in a willingness to reject the fleeting pleasure of this world when they conflict with Christ being our greatest treasure. We must continue, family, to see the beauty and the incalculable worth of Christ as our own, our, our eternal hope in the midst of all the allurements of this world. Nothing is of greater value than Christ who died and rose again. So if we are guilty of this commandment, I think to some degree we can all say yes. I really believe that. We flee to Christ. Run to Christ. Knowing that we are guilty of violence, command in so many ways, we, but we know the one who has fulfilled this commandment, every jot and tittle on our behalf. Let us treasure Christ and be so satisfied in him, so satisfied in him and all that he has done in the gospel that taking something that doesn't belong to us seems foolish in light of the infinite value and worth of Christ. And rather than taking, we give. We're generous of our possession, giving of our time. And that includes me, me first. My money, my belongings reflect the generosity, the kindness, the love that our Father and Savior has shown to us in the gospel. You know, Paul taught in chapter 2 about the condescension and the incarnation of Christ. In verse, chapter 2, verses 6 and following. But in verse 5... He starts it out with this verse. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. In other words, what Jesus has done has setting us free, liberating us from slavery to sin, death, and hell, and was generous to us, infinitely generous. We ought to be that way toward others. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, our desires to share with one another will grow. and We will love our neighbors. As Jesus hung on the cross... He said, Father, forgive them. Do you know why Jesus could ever forgive those who are seeking his demise, his execution, his crucifixion? Because he was paying their debt. And he paid our debt too. So the question to us as we close is not this. Are you a thief? The question is, are you the thief on the cross who turns away from Christ? Or are we the thief on the cross that turns to Christ for forgiveness, his presence, and inheritance? That's the question for us this morning. I'm going to invite the band up while everybody still remains seated. The communion, you have the wafer on top and the... And the um, Juice on the bottom. This, is, this opportunity we have today is not just simply a reminder. It's not simply a memorial, an intellectual, an intellectual uh, a remembrance, but a time of, of, of repenting, a time of confessing, a time of, of fleeing to Christ, our greatest treasure. And that's why we do this. We, we, we want to uh, 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 not only remember in our minds, but bring affection to the heart. That we are sinners who deserve separation from God from all eternity. That we are so bad that Christ had to come and die on the cross. But we are loved. We are cherished. God shows his mercy and kindness in the cross of Jesus Christ. And that is the greatest need you and I have. And that need has been met through the person and work of Jesus. Nothing in this world compares to that. As they say, you're not taking it with you. Treasure Christ above all earthly treasure. If you're a follower of Jesus, I invite you to come and take communion. If you're not a follower, the scripture actually says, do not partake. So whether you have a communion cup or not, if you're not a follower of Christ, at this, then, 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 then wait. Then wait. 
We, we're glad you're here. We love you. We want to talk to you. We want to share the gospel with you. We want you to love Jesus. We want you to confess your sin, repent, and believe on Jesus. No mistake about that. We love you enough to tell you that. But if you're a follower of Christ and you want to take communion with us, remember his broken body. And you could take out the wafer that's right on top over the plastic there. And, and remember, as you take this wafer, the, the body was broken, the juice that represents his blood that was shed for our sins. So we'll confess, we'll repent, and then we'll celebrate and take communion together. But what I'd like to do before we do that is just bow our heads in prayer just for a moment. If there's something we need to confess, there's something that we need to to repent from, if we're not treasuring Christ as we ought, and, and no one lives in that uh, uh, paradigm all the time, then, then let's do that now. Let's spend a moment just talking to the Lord, confessing our sin, repenting of our sins, and, and then we shall take communion together. Thank you for the work of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that forgives us of all our past, present, and future sins. And now, God, as a church, we want to celebrate the work of Jesus, treasuring him above all earthly treasures, as we remember not only who he is, but what he's done on our behalf, in our place for sinners, dying and rising, taking our punishment, wrath we deserve upon his body and then rising from the dead declaring that that sacrifice has been accepted and all those who call upon him shall be saved Father we thank you and we praise you in Jesus name Amen On the night Jesus was betrayed he took the bread he gave thanks this is my body that's been broken for you let us eat together Likewise, he took the cup. He says, it's the cup of the new covenant shed in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. Let us celebrate the work of Jesus and the gospel, our greatest treasure. Let us drink together. Together as we sing, cling to Christ. There's a verse in there, the bridge. I'm sure Jen was thinking of this when, she, when, when it talks about holding on to Christ, drawing near to Christ. Uh, verse 3, I'm sorry. All earthly aims and time will turn to dust. Let me learn that loss is gain for those who know your love. All the treasures of this world will never satisfy. You alone are endless joy. I cling to Christ. Let's sing that not to the screen, not to the band, but to Jesus. Jesus.